Please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to finish up chapter 1 and move into chapter 2 a little bit today as we cross over from chapter 1 verse 22 through chapter 2 verse 3. A new heart. The essence of true religion, all true religion, is an inward work of God and the changing of our hearts and making us new. Peter speaks of it here in verse 22. Hear then the word of God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the grass, and the grass withers, and the flower falls. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. So that by it you may grow up into your salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Pray with me. Father in heaven we have gathered again this day. That we might be your people that you would be our God, and that you would speak to us. Father, that you would work in our lives, that you would continue to change us and to make us more like Christ, that you would lead us into genuine worship and into a genuine change of life, that you would draw near to us and bless us with your presence and your word and the power of your grace. For we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we look at this text about Peter's touching on a new heart. We're going to talk about the new heart and what it is and also about the source of the new heart. Where does it come from? And then we're going to look at the fruit of the new heart. What are some of the ways that that is seen and evidenced in our lives and in our midst as a church? You know, it was in the 1950s. You remember Leave it to Beaver? And it kind of reminds, you know, whenever I hear Leave it to Beaver and I think of, you know, was it Joan and... uh, What's his name? Cleaver. You know, the, the whole Cleaver family. And everything is just so, I don't know, it's just so neat. You know, it's so pure in some respects. But there were a lot of folks who came out of the 50s and thought that it wasn't just, you know, neat that way. They felt that it was very superficial. Um, they felt that a lot of stuff was external. A lot of it was cultural. In fact, they thought they felt like church was very cultural. Like if you were if you uh, you know were part of the community, you went to church. All respectable people went to church, and so as you moved into the 1960s and 70s, there was a spiritual renewal that swept through, a charismatic renewal and a renewal of of, of uh, spiritual life in the church. It came through in the 60s and 70s and into the early 80s, and one of the things that they wanted to know from you, the Jesus people, uh, that came out of this was are they wanted to know are you born again? Are you born again? Not they want to know, do you go to church? Everybody goes to church. Not are you a Christian, because at that time, and often now in, in where we live, everybody says they're a Christian. You know, not do you believe in Jesus. Everybody has a checklist of things they believe. No, they, everybody would answer yes to these things. That's cultural Christianity. They, they wanted to know, 
are you born again, which gets at something deeper. They want to know if there's been a real change in the deep recesses of your soul. Right? They want to know. They want to attempt to differentiate between a cultural Christian, cultural Christianity, and real Christianity. You know, cultural, we, we speak even today, we talk about nominal Christians versus, we don't use the same language all the time, but versus a born-again Christian, because any, Christ, any real Christian is a born-again Christian, at least according to Jesus. You must be born again, Jesus says. And so, differentiating from a nominal Christian, the word nominal means it exists just in name. That's what nominal comes from, the Latin for name. And so something that is nominal, if I say I'm a vegetarian, I've used this illustration before, if I say I'm a vegetarian, and I preach to you all the benefits of vegetarianism, and I can tell you the tenets of vegetarianism, and what you can and cannot eat, right down to whether eggs fit in there, and you know, and fish and milk is milky. You know, when you get into and I get out and then I leave from here and you find me a longhorn <laughs> with a big juicy steak. You would say there are real vegetarians and then there are nominal vegetarians, those who in only in name. They talk the talk, but when it comes down to it, their, their eating life really hasn't changed. Right? The way they live and the way they Nominal, existing in name only. Words are cheap. Jesus told us that many will profess to be Christians. At one point in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not go to church? You know, did did, did we not read our Bibles sometimes? Did we not believe in you? Didn't we say that we believed in you? And Jesus will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Right? Jesus says there will be many who profess to be Christians, many who will say, Lord, Lord. In, In the parable of the soils, if you remember, the word is, is scattered and it falls on four soils. And, he, and, and of the four soils, only one of, three of them respond. Three of them profess to be Christians. So nominally. But only one of them was good soil. Where something happened deep down. And it germinated and brought life and a harvest. So after the beaver generation, the Jesus people wanted to know. Do you go to church, or are you really born again? Because a new birth is not a human decision. It's a divine intervention. There's something that really happens. It's not just a decision I made one day. It's something that God did. It's a divine intervention. There's a real spiritual event. The soul is changed by the intrusion and the power of God. To make a heart new, to change what it loves, to change its desires, to change its direction, to change its loyalties. Peter says in verse 22, having purified your souls. Something real has happened. Something deep has happened. Soul deep has happened. A purifying, a a cleansing, a change. Right, having purified your, your souls through obedience to the truth. Truth there is the gospel. The truth there is the word about Jesus and what he has done for us. It's the same obedience to the, to the truth. If you remember, we talked about verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ 
and a sprinkling by his blood. It's that obedience, that obedience to Jesus. It is the, the, the fruit of that sanctifying, purifying, heart-changing work of the Spirit that brings us to an obedience to Christ that is a resounding yes with the whole soul and life. We become his, and he becomes ours. The heart is filled with love to Christ and love to his word and love to his will and to his ways, a love to God and to his kingdom. The whole life becomes obedient to the will of God. I may struggle at it, but that's what we want. Why? Because be holy because he is holy, right? To be, to be pure, to be right, to be, because he is. McLaren there in your bulletin under the first point of the new heart. This is Alexander McLaren, an old preacher of a previous century, said that the moment when they bowed themselves in joyful acceptance, obeyed the word, there's a great word, and they put a firm hand of faith to grasp Christ. He said, that is obedience. It's not just a few things that we do that we're, you know, not suppo- you know, that we don't do what we're not supposed to do and do what we're supposed to do. It's, it's saying yes to Jesus. In the very act of trusting him, there's a self-surrender because when we say yes to Jesus, we obey the gospel. But we also surrender. Because of who he is. So we have purified the soul. He says in verse 22. For sincere and brotherly love. And then in verse 23 he goes on to say. Since then we have been born again. Having purified the souls. We have been. He says because we've been born again. Not of a perishable seed. That born again again. Harkens back to verse 3. Where he's talking about. What God has done. According to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again. Brought us to this obedience. And so the purifying of the soul, I think, is the same thing as the new birth. It's that same work of the Spirit that when He gives, you know, brings that, causes us to be born again, the soul is changed, it is purified, it is cleansed. It becomes His heart. He takes up residence in that place, in this place. And so there, Titus 3, 5, in your bulletin, it says He saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by an almighty power, by the washing, that is the purifying, of regeneration, that is the new birth, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a real spiritual change, a work of God by his spirit in the heart and in the soul and the deep places of a human being that changes him, not just in that moment, but forever. Born again purified, radical work of the Spirit coming into our lives and giving us a new heart. It's another, it's the same, different language, same thing. The purified soul, the born again person, the new heart. There it is in Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel speaking of the new covenant and what God is going to do in, by Christ, through Christ and His Spirit. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone, your dead heart, your unresponsive heart, your heart that doesn't love me, your heart that doesn't obey me, your heart that isn't interested in the things that concern me, your heart that doesn't love my word, your heart that doesn't obey my ways. I'm going to take your dead heart, your your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you, he says, a new heart, a heart of flesh that beats 
beats after my own heart and I'll put my spirit in you and it will move you to follow my decrees and to keep my laws. You will love me and you will love my will and my ways. Born again. You will love me and you will love my ways. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The purified in heart, you've purified your souls, for they are the ones who shall see God. Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. But when a man is born again, he can see. The eyes of the blind are open. The new heart has new faculties and abilities to see that which is spiritually true. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have the purified heart. Because they will see God. They will see his kingdom. They will see his gospel. They will see his Christ. And they will see there their own salvation. And they will love him. And they will obey him. And they will surrender themselves to him as their savior and as their king. My friends, the entire Christian life, everything that you would open up and read here that God says and wants of us, the entire Christian life flows from that born again, purified, new heart that God gives by the almighty power of His Spirit. And if it doesn't flow from there, it doesn't exist. So Hammond says, the last under your first point, Regeneration is that act of God whereby the soul undergoes a spiritual resurrection into a new sphere of life in which he is alive to God in a way that he was not and united to Christ. And God has implanted him a newborn soul, a totally new principle of life, a heart after God's own heart. Peter's talking about something real. The whole New Testament is, the whole Bible is, really. But, you know, but, but Peter is, as we read these things, they're talking about something real. And sometimes we can leave them just out there in the realm of, of theoretical, of things we believe and check off a lift up here, but haven't really come to roost in the deep places. He's talking about something living and something vital and something life-transforming. But how does this come about? How is a person born again? This is what the new heart is. This is what God does. This is the essence of true religion. This is the essence of Christianity. But how does it happen? How does a person become born again? How does this soul-ravaging, life-transforming work take place? What does he say? Since you have been born again, verse 23, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, through the living and the abiding Word of God. Born again, not of a perishable, nothing, you know, so earthly as a seed that we, but an imperishable seed, an eternal seed, a living and abiding seed, which is the Word of God. And I love this. I mean, in a great image, I love the image of the Word of God as a seed of something that that has the the ability that if it's planted in the right conditions, grows, you know, breaks forth into life and grows into something, something amazing, something full of life where it didn't seem there was before. The Word of God is a seed that makes its way into the hearts and souls of, of people as we hear it. 
And it accomplishes something. It, it brings life with it. We think in the parable of the sower. You remember Jesus? The word of God is, is like seed. And the sower comes and he scatters it. And, and on what kind of soil does it fall? Some don't make any profession at all. Some make some profession and say, yes, yes, I believe in Jesus, and, but it doesn't abide. And then there's the good soil where it, where it bears that harvest when the conditions are right. Look in your bulletin then under the second point. This is Isaiah 55 where God speaks in his prophets about his word. And he says that God's word is potent and life-giving. It always has been. It always will be. It's living and it's abiding. Right? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return there, except that they water the earth, and they make it to bring forth and to sprout. It brings life. Giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, and so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not to return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose, and it will succeed, and it will accomplish the very thing for which I sent it. Thus is, he says, the word of God. Life-giving power that accomplishes everything that God says it's supposed to accomplish. This is why in Romans 1, 16, there in your bulletin right under that, Paul can cry out as he knows the word of Christ that he has come to know in his own life, has brought about this change, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, the word about Jesus and who he is and what he has done. I'm not ashamed of this word. Why? Because it is the power of God. It saves. It brings life. When it is spoken into the life of people, God uses it to accomplish his purpose, to bring life, to cause people to be born again, to be saved. And so Romans ten seventeen there in your bulletin, it says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. The word of Christ gives birth to faith in the souls of those who hear. It creates this faith. So the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to accomplish the purposes of God. Right? That's how the Spirit works. It's the way that God has chosen to do it. The Spirit of God uses His Word to accomplish His purposes. So the Word of God is living. It's like a seed. It's powerful, it's potent, it's full of life, it's full of possibility. It's living, but it's also abiding, right? Verse 23, it's living and it's abiding as the Word of God. It does not change. And then he describes this again from the Old Testament, verses 24. All the flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Generations will pass away, and they have. The Word of God, the Word that we're reading here, some of it that I just read from Isaiah, how long ago was that written? 2,800 years ago? 2,900 years? Close to three millennia ago? And we're reading it this morning, and it has power in our lives. 
Right? The Word of God, generation after generation after generation, all flesh is like grass, it passes away. We, we will pass away, but the Word of God will stay and continue to build the church of Jesus Christ in the generations that follow. Its power abides, the Word abides. It is God's Word. It will accomplish the purposes for which it's sent over centuries and over millennia. still is infallibly accomplishing the purpose. When I was 18 years old and, and this word came into my life, after having lived in rebellion, after having nothing to do with God, after giving myself to, to, to a life and to things that, that are all those things that we were, utter rebellion against anything that had to do with God. And this word came into my life and I have never been the same. This, this word, this abiding word that carries power through the centuries and generations to cause people to be born again, to come to love him and to serve him and to want to know him and to spend an eternity with him. And he says, this word, verse 25, is the word that is preached to me and it's been preached to you. This life-giving, powerful word comes to us. It brings life, if indeed, as you look at verse 3, chapter 2, the end of the text I read, he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, if, if it has had the effect in your soul of changing things such that, that, that it is sweet. Because I believe, as I said, that new heart, the purified heart, has new taste buds. Right? We taste what is good and right and righteous and holy, and we love it. And we have a new taste for the things that I used to delight in when I was 17 and 16 and 15, all those things I used to do and, in a sense, love. My taste buds have changed. I now see and say, I don't want that. It doesn't taste good to me. It isn't right to me. If I have tasted and seen that God is good and what he says is good and who he is is right. And I I want his influence in my life to make me like Christ, like him. Right? If we have tasted and seen that God is good, in other words, if our taste buds have been changed, if our souls have been purified, if we have indeed been born again. So let's talk about the fruit. This is the new heart and this is how it comes. By the living and abiding, powerful, almighty word of God. What are some of the fruits of it? Peter gives a clear sense right off the top. There are a number of answers you could give to that. What are the fruit of the new life? The New Testament is rife with them. You can go through and the fruits are many. The fruits of the Spirit. But what's the first fruit of the Spirit? And that's what Peter gives us, right? Verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Four. With the result that or leading to for this purpose... Your heart has to be purified so that you can have a sincere love. A sincere brotherly love. So that you will love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It takes a pure heart to love purely. It takes a pure heart, a born again heart to love sincerely. And this is the true mark of a Christian and we know this from the the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then I think the rest just describe what love is. It's joy and peace and patience and it's kindness and it's goodness and it's gentleness and it's faithfulness and it's self-control. And you can give your body to be burned in the flames. You can give all that you own to the poor. You can fathom every mystery. You can have all faith. You can do all these things. But if you have not love, you are nothing. You don't know God because God is love. And love is the first fruit and love is the mark of a believer. And a sincere love, 
See, this is the thing. We live in a world of masks and lies and deceits, and that's what he's going to say. What does sincere love look like? Sincere brotherly love. 1 John 4, 7, there in your bulletin, under the last point, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. This is how we know someone has been born of God. They love like God does. Their heart has been changed. They love what he does, and they love how he does. Sincere love, real love, as he said, is earnest love, right? Love one another earnestly. So it's sincere, and it's earnest, and it's pure. Little children, 1 John three eighteen. let us not love in word and with talk. Let's not say it. But let us, he says, this is 1 John 3.18 in your bulletin, but let us love in deed and in truth, sincerely and earnestly. That is practically, and his first is John unpacks that. It means practically in the way that we love each other and pour ourselves out on behalf of each other and bear each other's burdens and pray for one another and encourage one another, meet one another's needs and are there for one another in so many ways. Sincere and earnest love puts the interest of others before its own. It's demonstrated in attitudes and actions. And then ultimately in words as well as word. Pride puffs up, but love builds up. That's what love does. It's demonstrated in attitudes and actions. It puts the interests of others before their own. As I do marriage counseling, and we talk about what is, it you're, what is marriage, what are you doing, and what is love? You know, and, I, and we get down to the essence of love is to put the interests of someone else above your own. You know, to die to your rights and to die to your preferences and to love somebody else. You know, if love is just how you make me feel, that is the most self-centered thing that you could possibly imagine. Love is how you make me feel, and now you don't make me feel that way, so I don't love you anymore. That is the most selfish thing I've ever heard. Scripture says love it's patient and it's kind and it keeps no record of wrongs and it, and it believes all things and it hopes all things and it never fails because it is given to the benefit of another. Love is to give yourself away, not to get something from somebody. So love, earnest love, dies to itself and to its rights and to its preferences. God is so clear in this. I think it is interesting as you read the New Testament, there are many times that we are called to a sincere love, that we're called to earnest love, we're called to sincere brotherly love. And I think that he's so clear in saying that as opposed to just saying, hey, everybody love each other. And Jesus did say it that way, love one another. You know, if, if you, They'll know you're my disciples because you love one another. And then, and then Peter, after a little while has gone by, Jesus is... He's gone, the church goes on, and now he finds he needs to qualify it. You guys, when he said love one another, he meant sincere, <laughs> right? He meant earnest, you guys. You know, he didn't, he didn't mean just that superficial, you know, smile Sunday morning. No, he meant sincere, earnest love from a pure heart, like it has to go heart deep. <laughs> the real thing. What does the real thing look like? Well, it, aside from putting the preferences of others first and, and, and loving them, he says, I think it looks like verse 1 of chapter 2, it looks like what we, there's what we do is what we don't do. And he says, put away, verse 1 there, chapter 2, put away all malice, put away all deceit, put away all hypocrisy and envy and slander. And this is the so, therefore, do these things, right? Your hearts have been purified by the 
powerful living word of God that abides forever. So, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Put that stuff out. Right? Get rid of it. Have your wits about you. What is malice? And let me just run through these. Malice is ill will. Right? It's an evil will. It's an ill will. I have malice. I'm, I, have, I have a bad. I, I liken it to, as I was thinking about this, I liken it to a bad attitude. I have a bad attitude about either somebody or something or some, you know. Um, I have an ill will. Uh, you know, a negative posture. You know, that's malice is an ill will. Bad attitudes which can infect the church in the time of Peter. You read the book of Corinthians, the Corinthian church. As Peter addresses the church, every writer of the New Testament addresses God's people and calls them to sincere love. Because sometimes we get bad attitudes, malice, or deceit. Deceit, as you look at it, is simply an insincerity. It is artificial, right? And so deceit here is to smile and act nice to each other when our hearts are negative and critical, and disparaging. When we put on the good face, but we hide an impure heart. Not, not a Christ-like. Or, and this leads to the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, we all know, is the pretender. It's the faker, right? And we usually hide our bad attitudes and our insincerity behind masks. And when we do that, our hypocrisy, our, our, our malice, and our deceit, when it's hidden under this, these masks will come out and slander, right? And he says to put away slander. Slander, literally here in the Greek, the word is made up of two Greek words, the word for evil, kakos, and the word for speaking. And it literally means evil speaking, saying it's that negative, it's death talk. The Old Testament, the Proverbs says that the, the, the power of life and death are in the tongue, right? You remember that, Proverbs, right? And so there, there are life words and there are death words, Slander is death words. It's evil speaking. It's when we put our bad attitudes and our insincerity into words. And so we complain and we argue and we judge and we backbite and we discourage and we tear down and we sow discontent. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4, writing to another church, and it's writing to churches that he says these things, right? 429, there in your bulletin. He says, let no corrupting talk, that is, The word there is literally rotting, you know, like a rotting piece of fruit or a rotting piece of meat. Let no corrupting talk, talk that leads to, to makes things rot, right? Tearing down or rotting or death. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up that it may give grace to those who hear. Churches are built and destroyed. By the power of the tongue. The preaching of the gospel. Words of life and encouragement. Of hope. Believing all things. Trusting all things. And never failing. And words of death. Evil talk. That tears down and creates rot. He says put it all away. Brothers and sisters. Put it all away. Because you've been born again and your hearts have been purified. And you belong to him and these are his people. So let me just ask you four questions this morning as you go. Four in a way of application, four questions. First one is simply that 
probably should have been niggling in your mind from the very beginning, and that's, are you born again? Are you born again? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Where you love what He loves and it is good to your soul? Has your heart been purified, changed? Not do you go to church, not do you call yourself a Christian, not do you believe certain things, not do you believe that he died on a cross, not do you believe things, but have you tasted and seen that God is good? Has your heart been changed? That when you hear these things in the word, we are cut to the quick and I want to be his person. You know, I want to put away those things and I want to put on those things and I want to honor him and bless his church and be a part of Have you been made new? Have you said with a resounding yes with your whole heart and your whole life to Jesus? If you have not this morning, God is in the business of changing lives. He's in the business of making people new. He's in the business causing people to enter into a new life. If you've never done that before, I would encourage you this morning to give a resounding yes to Christ with your whole life and your whole soul. And the same thing where you say yes to Jesus, you surrender your life to Him. Are you born again? Is your love earnest and sincere? And this is one we have to ask ourselves over and over again because I find myself in conversation with my wife and with other people again and again where I find my heart not earnest and sincere in its love. I find things there that don't belong there. I find things there I have to repent of. Purity of soul does give rise to a purity of love. It's the evidence of a new heart. And sincere love will change our attitudes. Because it is out of our attitudes that flow our actions and our words. And the Christian life is a, is a life of regular attitude check. Right, isn't it? I mean, we call it repentance. Confession and repentance. A regular attitude check of checking to see if I am where I should be in my heart. What lurks behind your smile? You need an attitude adjustment. Is your love earnest and sincere? And so thirdly, do you long and crave for pure spiritual milk? Chapter 2 right there he says, Put away all these things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and slander, and like newborn infants, like those who have been born of God, long for, crave the spiritual milk of his word so that we can grow. You crave His Word. The same Word that gives us life is the same Word that nurtures our purity and nurtures our life and continues to purify our hearts as it, as it tells us who we are and leads us. It is His kindness. It leads us to repentance and our attitude checks to get ourselves right with Him and right with each other. We need to crave His Word. And so I would ask, how is your appetite? <laughs> you crave his, the pure milk of His Word so that we could be made and remade into His likeness. Finally, do you love the gospel? Do you know that the imperishable seed of His Word brings eternal life? I think sometimes we say, it's one of those things again, it's on my list of things I believe. God says my Word will accomplish what I send it out to do. And then He calls us, it's the foolishness of what is preached that He saves. And He calls us to speak that word. It's illegal to share the gospel. I was was reading this week in 53 countries in the world. You know that? 53 countries, it's illegal to say that word that brings life. 
And I think they're discovering around the world. I was also reading this week that a Christian couple, as a young couple that had just converted to Christianity, were hacked to death with machetes in India by Hindus. And what you're finding around the world is the gospel is powerful and people are converting. And the only way to stop the advance of the gospel and the kingdom when the word is preached, which is powerful and accomplishes this life, is to silence it. And in 53 countries in the world, you're not allowed to say it anymore. Because when that happens, we lose. We start losing people. The only way to stay in power is to silence the power of the gospel. Do you understand what God has given you and that he asks you to speak? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the changing of hearts and lives across the world. Speak. Has your heart been purified and made new? Is your love earnest and sincere and from the heart? Is your appetite strong? Do you crave his word? Are you unashamed of his gospel? Pray with me.